which says, Why do the nations conspire? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven just laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise and be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, and blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the second psalm. Wonderful psalm. And I'm just going to go through it as it has an impact in the way that we think today. Let me grab some water. So this psalm comes in the context of David ruling in Jerusalem. So it has elements that actually apply to David as the anointed king. David was anointed king over Israel by the Lord. And people did take their stand against David. There were armies that came against the nation of Israel. All right? So there is an aspect in this that applies to that, to, to that specific day. But there are other elements that don't actually apply to them. So David ruled a single kingdom and not nations. Uh, nations conspiring and kings of the earth rebelling and throwing off their fetters tells us that this scripture, while having some application to, G, uh, to David, is not and doesn't have a full application to David. So this psalm has a number of elements that I'm going to have a look at today and what those mean. And first of all, it is prophetic. Okay, The psalm comes in the context of David ruling Jerusalem, as we said, but there's some things that don't apply to him. These things, David, as I said, ruled a single kingdom and not the nations. And nations conspiring and earth rebelling and throwing off fetters. This was not related to David specifically because he ruled over a single nation. So because there are these elements that don't apply to David's kingdom, all right, we can take the psalm to be prophetic. And what we mean by this is that it's a picture of something that is going to happen in the future. Because it's not completely applicable to, to that day that, uh, uh, that uh, God was speaking about or the psalm was speaking about. So it's, firstly it's prophetic and we're going to speak mostly about prophetic. But it is also political. It's about rulers and nations and specifically addresses rulers. And so we know the psalm is not simply about everybody. It is specifically applying to the rulers and authorities in the earth. It's about their disposition as rulers and nations, to the rule of God and to His anointed one. So it's a political, now we don't often see that because of the fact that it's kings and rulers of the earth, we kind of think, you know, that's Old Testament. But kings are like our prime ministers now. So it would be, if we had to redo it, it's your disposition as prime ministers or presidents towards God and towards Jesus. That's what it is. So it's political. It's a political um, a scripture. And then 
Lastly, it's passionate. Uh, there's rage, there's throw off, there's anger, there's terrify, there's kiss. So there's a certain amount of passion in this scripture. And something that I've said before, or I've ministered on before, when it says the kingdom of uh, God suffers violence, and violent men take a hold of it, uh, that scripture seems to be that it was speaking prophetically about Jesus having violent people taking a hold of him. But Jesus was using it in two parts. is that you cannot remain dispassionate towards the things of God. There is either a response of rebellion or a response of love. Those two. And it's not dispassionate. And we know that as Christians. Because the response to Jesus is not like, oh well, you believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You guys are terrible. Hey, amazing. There's this, this passion thing. So it's political, it's prophetic, and it's passionate. So the first part we're going to deal with is the prophetic. Alright? This is a prophetic in insight or vision throughout the New Old Testament. We see these excerpts coming that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. These, uh, these visions that come. And this specific psalm is what we would call a messianic psalm. Because it's speaking about... <coughs> The anointed one, the son of God, the future ruler. All right. So it's a messianic scripture. And in this psalm and in many of the psalms, it seems to say always more than what is there. And then you know, okay, wait a minute. This is probably prophetic. In other words, it's not speaking about that time. It's speaking about a time in the future. And if you read through the Old Testament, which I hope you guys are doing, you will find this, these elements that as a, as a believer, a New Testament believer in Jesus, you will say, that doesn't seem to fit there. Because it's almost like the, 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 the prophet is speaking about certain things that are related to that day. And then all of a sudden it's like a rabbit trail. He goes off somewhere else that's speaking about something that doesn't seem to apply. Those scriptures are prophetic. And when it's the, to me, it's the most exciting thing, particularly if you haven't, you know, you haven't gone through some place and studied all of them and know them all. It's when you read through scripture and then you come across these little elements of prophetic, future prophetic elements, you think to yourself, wow, that is amazing. Gee, what does this mean? And then you go and you really study it and you find that it's prophetic. In other words, it's speaking about a time in the future and its interpretation is only available to those who are in Christ. Uh, this is one of those psalms written for us uh, that on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come through Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Colossians 1.26 says this, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. And it speaks about that even the prophets in the Old Testament, they wanted to look into it, but they couldn't understand it. That's why the Bible says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because we have the fullness of revelation of everything that's in the Old Testament. That's what God has brought to us because we are these kingdom people. And that's what it, they were serving us in some sense. They were serving us so that we might take the fullness of what they say. So running some prophetic insights. So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to go through some prophetic things that I think are important, alright? And the first one that I'm going to do is to undo a misconception, alright? Now, some of you might 
sort of take a like a, a back seat. Uh, this is, a, I mean, for me, it's a, an important thing, and it's something that uh, that I had to change in my times when I was at Bible College. I, I had a certain view, and it was changed. And it was changed because of these two scriptures, um, one Thessalonians four, uh, fifteen to seventeen says this. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are still left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died that are Christians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead, those of us who die before Jesus returns, that are believers, all right, we will be raised first. After that, anybody that is a believer that's left alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Um, now, don't be mistaken by that. So we'll be with the Lord as telling you where you're going to be with the Lord. All right. We're going to find that out just now. But it says that we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, there's another scripture, Revelation 24 to 5, that we have to work in conjunction with this one. All right. And it says this. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was ended. Now this is the very important word that you need to remember. This is the first resurrection. Say first. first. This is the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Not the second, not the third, not the fourth. It is the first resurrection. Okay? These two scriptures clearly articulate the sequence of events that occur at the second coming of the Lord. Which this scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, is a primary scripture that is used in that. And this is the sequence of events that comes. The timeline. Jesus returns. Alright? As we saw in Thessalonians... For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God. So that's the first thing that happens. Jesus returns. Alright? The same way Jesus left, when the disciples, when the angels were, when the, the disciples were looking to Jesus going up to heaven in the clouds, then the angel said, why are you looking up into the clouds? The same Jesus that left is coming down the same way. Okay? The Bible's clear, scriptures are clear. The, the same way that he left is the same way he's coming down. The whole world will see him coming in the clouds. The Bible's clear about that. Many scriptures relating to that. So this is the first return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Alright? Not first return. The only return to Je of Jesus to the earth. So the first thing that happens, Jesus returns. Second thing that happens, the dead in Christ rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 And the dead in Christ rise will rise first. Known as the first resurrection. Revelation 25. What, what resurrection? The first. 
First resurrection? Is it the first resurrection? It says first. First resurrection. Okay? Now, describing the people who participate in the first resurrection, it says, people who had not received the mark of the beast or worshipped him. Okay? So I can clearly tell you something there. That's the sequence of events. Then, those who are alive in Christ are caught up to be with Christ. Why? Because they do not precede those who have been dead in Christ. We don't go before the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-16, very clear, and we can't change the progression, no matter how much we want to. And a lot of people want to change that progression because they don't want to be persecuted by the beast. But brothers and sisters, this is very, very critical. There is no other way that we can read this. There's no other way you can read it. The first resurrection is the dead in Christ rise first. And then we who are left go to be with Jesus after that. Alright? Then comes the reign of Christ. Which is the focal point. Not the rapture. As we call it. Or the catching to be with Jesus. Or the reason. The focus is our rulership with Christ for the thousand years. Why is this important? And why do I talk about it so often? Because you've heard me speak about it. Because Hebrews 6 tells us that the resurrection of the dead is a foundational teaching. Not a secondary teaching, it's a foundational teaching. Right? The Bible never speaks about, speaks specifically, the word rapture is not used, but it doesn't focus in on the catching of, of, away of people to heaven. Alright? It focuses on resurrection. We must remember that. We must remember. I was one of those who absolutely, 100% believed that when the beast was here, we would not be here. I even had dreams that of being taken away to be with Jesus. And it was exciting. This was fantastic. And this was in the 80s. Alright? 70s and 80s. It was a, there was an expectation of Jesus Christ returning. And that was fantastic because it inspired our faith. We really felt... It, it, I mean, it really motivated us. So it's not that it's bad when people are motivated by a sense of expectation of the, of the return of the Lord. All right? And I was at Bible college. I debated with the, the person that was our dean until he showed me these two scriptures. Once I saw those two scriptures, I thought, okay, I have to. It's wrong. I can't. The first resurrection comes before we get caught to be with him. So therefore, that means that I have to rethink the way that I thought about tribulation. Because most people have said tribulation is about the beast's rule. And that's not tribulation. The tribulation found in Revelation, because you'll go and read it, and that I've done all the arguments, where it says that you will be kept from the trial or tribulation that is coming on the whole earth. What does that mean? When Jesus returns and we brought to be with Him, we don't go to be in heaven with Him. That's when judgment comes upon the earth. And we who are believers will be saved from God's judgment, not the devil's judgment. I mean, what are you going to say to all the, all the people that have been beheaded and given up their lives over the centuries for Jesus? Are you going to say to them, well, you're part of the tribulation? Yes, they are part of the tribulation, a great tribulation for believers since, it, since we started. It's been a great tribulation. 
Very important. Let me go on, otherwise I'll get stuck over here. Alright? So this psalm prophetically is specifically about that. Alright? Um, and I feel like when I believed that we were going to be here, we were going to be caught up before the beast, it robbed me of the focus of rulership with Christ on the earth. It robbed me of the reason why I would get a resurrected body. It robbed me of the fact that I love this earth physically and nature. I absolutely think it is the reflection of God and all His creativity. And I love it. And I cannot wait for God to restore it the way it should be. Where the lion will lie down with the lamb and not eat it. That's what I wait for. That's my expectation. And the fact that we would get a body, a resurrected body, which the Bible speaks about, is not for heaven. When you die, you're going to be with heaven. You don't need a body. You're going to be celebrating. We're going to be waiting for you. If we're still here and you die first, we're waiting for you. Not for us to come to you, but for you to come to us. And then your body is reunited with yourself physically so that you can rule with Christ here on earth. Because the only reason why you need a physical body, a resurrected body, is for rulership on earth. And that's what it robbed me of. And now I think I see through a different lens and I think, I am so excited. Bring it on. I don't, the fact that the beast arrives and he beheads us or he kills us or whatever happens, bring it. Because we know what's on the other side. I want to be here when the beast comes. I want to be considered worthy to give up my life for Christ. Don't you? That's what the early church says. That God would consider them worthy to suffer for Christ. And yet there is a whole teaching out there that teaches believers with an escapist mentality to escape persecution. And it's a terrible thing. Because persecution is our destiny. And we'll see that a little bit later on. I'm getting carried away. I've only got a small amount of time left. But that, I just, I'm, I'm so excited when this God showed me. It, it changed my thinking. And it released a whole lot of different, uh, 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 sort of, an expansion of my theology. Not a constriction. It expanded my understanding. So it's a phenomenal thing. Please. Guys, that's why I'm, I, I love it. So what's the big picture? The big picture is the first coming of Jesus. When we think about it in this psalm. The first coming of Jesus was about the defeat of Satan. Right? We are in, and we are entrusted as heralds. That's a great commission. The proclamation of Jesus as king. In this dispensation, the kings of the earth, have, are, they can voluntarily submit or not. And we can see that, that most of them are doing everything that they can to resist the will of the Lord and the rulership of Christ. But the Bible specifically and clearly tells us that Jesus is already king and rulership. We are simply the heralds. Alright? We're simply the heralds. The, 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 this is where Jesus rules. In, okay, so that's the first event. In this display, there's a submission to Christ. It's voluntary. You know, I watched, and you probably watched... The, the, the Gladiator, the movie Gladiator. The opening scene of Gladiator is one of the most profound 
um, I would say, profound pictures of the believer's life in the church. And this is it. They send out a herald on a horseback to the then Germanic grouping of people that they had conquered or they were conquering, saying, these are the terms of peace. Submit, otherwise we will destroy you. And the herald comes back without his head tied to the back of a horse or tied on the top of a horse. And in that moment, I just realized that is a picture of the believers and the church. We are heralds. And some of us will not escape with our lives because they will reject us. That's okay. So that's the first event. Second event is the second coming of Jesus. And Psalm 2 specifically speaks about this time. And this brings in the reign of Jesus on earth for a thousand years. And Satan is bound for a thousand years. And this is where Jesus rules the nation with an iron scepter and dashes the nations like pottery if they do evil. That's going to happen, guys. We're not going to... Jesus will not soft soap it. He's not like... He's given us voluntary, you can do it or not, at this point in time. But when He comes, it says He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And I mean, we see this in Revelation 15, 17. And I love this scripture. You go home and read it. But it's a picture of a white horse with the armies of heaven following right behind Him. And He comes with an iron scepter with which He will rule the nations. This is the final chapter of the Bible and Psalm 2 is a prophetic picture of that specific time because it says he will rule them with an iron scepter. So we have this two, these two things. It's a beautiful picture, I think. All right. And he is the king. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And with Him, everybody that has died in Christ. And those people that are coming back will receive their resurrected body as a part of the armies of heaven coming to earth, coming to rule. And we will be caught up with Him with a resurrected body coming back to rule with Him on earth for a thousand years. All those things that are politically in you are there because in the future age, you will rule. <sighs> so exciting. Event three, the final rebellion. Because there's a rule for a thousand years. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Then Satan is let loose for a period of time. And he deceives the nations again. And they do the same thing. They rebel against Jesus. And Jesus then destroys them. All right, That's the thing. Jesus defeats the nations in battle. And time for the next major event is the new heaven and the new earth. That's like just a big picture of what this prophetic uh, psalm is speaking into. Isn't it amazing? I am so excited when I read these scriptures. But it's also political and it is also passionate. When it comes to the rulership of Jesus and the response of governments to Him, we must not be unaware of the spiritual and prophetic nature of things. 
just because that time of when he rules hasn't come yet. Because it has come, in a sense, 2,000 years ago when Jesus won the victory on the cross. Jesus said to his disciples they should expect, not avoid, the same treatment that he received from the political systems of this world. Jesus said that. You'll be taken before rulers. Don't worry about what you will say. People will persecute you because they've persecuted me. Don't expect to be loved by the world. And there is this, this kind of mixing in where we, because we're in democracy, we feel like we have a choice and therefore kind of we can determine. And there is an aspect where we can determine, all right, if God so desires. But we must be very careful that we don't think, that we don't get meshed in with that thing, all right? It's easy to become upset if we, because of what's happening, and we must not be upset because it's what's happening is happening. Basically, it says political rulers, their disposition will be irration, irrationally harsh. When political leaders say the worst people are evangelicals, that is irrationally harsh. Born again believers have been the best thing that this planet has ever had. So it's irrational. It's irrational. But because of this spiritual thing behind it. Nations will rage against Jesus and desperately plot to keep his influence out of their, their, their governments. That's, that's happening, guys. You can see it before your very eyes. It's unfolding. And the worst thing for an evil government is truth and exposing their wickedness. And you know, in John 3, when it speaks about being born again, it says the reason why people don't want to be born again is because their deeds are evil. And it's not because they don't believe in Jesus. It's because they know that Jesus in their life exposes their wickedness. And if they want to hold on to that wickedness, they're not going to accept Jesus. That's how we know people are believers or not, if they want to hold on to their wickedness. And governments are no different. They don't want the truth to expose the stuff that is there. The fetters and chains that the psalm is speaking about is the constraints of righteousness. That's what the rebellion is all about. It's the constraints of righteousness. You see, we know righteousness because we know Jesus. But for people who don't know Jesus, they just see the righteousness as fetters and chains to keep them bound from doing what their lustful, uh, selfish wants are within them to do. That's the reason. And how do I know that? Not because I'm sitting in judgment of somebody, because I know that's within me. Why do I know I need Jesus and people need Jesus? Because I know what's in me. Right? It's not judgmental. It's just a recognition of what's there. You know, it's the difference between believers and, and unbelievers. Unbelievers in the world thinks everybody's good. And that basically it was circumstances that have made them bad. So we must see them as that. Where Jesus says, no, everybody's evil. And they need to be redeemed. And a big difference, worldview wise. Let me go on quickly, because we're already there. The irrationality is because there is a spirit behind what they are doing. The spirits are agitated because, as Jan read the scripture, the time is short. 
Their punishment is close at hand. The nations are gathered and they are resisting. You think that, the, the, that what is going on in the West at the moment and the tensions that are there, do you think that they are just different worldviews? Now this is about a spiritual thing that's happening. A resistance to the rule of God. And it has, it's tied to two things. Disposition towards Israel and disposition towards Christians. That's the two things. Because those two, the church and Israel, reflect the future king that is coming. And future judgment that is also coming. And we must expect this. I'm, I'm not excited about some things, but I'm excited because the more we get towards the end, we're going to see this, this passion and these... It's just going to become very tumultuous. There will be terrible days in the ends. It says that. We're in that time. Hallelujah. We must not look simply at the surface of things, but what is behind the enemy's strategy. We must take comfort in the following words. Or take comfort that we are going to be persecuted like everybody, like all the believers have gone before us. Alright, and Jesus, Jesus said that. Alright, if anyone is going to go again in captivity, captivity they will go. If anyone is going to be killed by the sword, with a sword he will be killed. And this calls for patient endurance of part of the saints. You've got to be patient because this thing's happening. It's unfolding before our very eyes. We can't expect something different. Don't expect the government to love you. Don't. Rejoice when they persecute you. When they speak well of you, that's when you need to be worried. So when people speak about the evangelical church, they are like the worst in that thing. They say, Hallelujah! Something's happening. We're actually the people that are bringing righteousness. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. When somebody says to you, you know, the evangelical church, and that is happening with Christians are even saying, the evangelical church. Oh my. Even the church will persecute the church people. Because they're not the true church. Speak to people who speak about the church, the evangelical church in that way, and you say, so tell me, how do you go to church? Are you seeking the Lord? Do you love Jesus? Oh, no, not really. Why not? Because their deeds are evil. Alright. Lastly, what is our message to governments? Our specifically, our government of this world. What is our message? Why do you conspire? Why do you plot in vain? Why? I love that why. You know why I love that why? Why? Because it's going to make no difference how much you plot in vain. See, we mustn't think about it the other way. We can say, oh no, why are they doing this? You know, that's one way to do it. Otherwise, you can say, why are you doing this? It's not going to change anything. The king is coming. He is going to judge. So why are you plotting against him? It's futile. He will destroy you. There's a comfort in the message. Everything that is anti-righteousness and evil in governments as they plot is absolutely in vain. 
You can only take this position if you're looking and taking refuge, not in your government and political leaders, but in your king that you represent. You shouldn't get worried. So you're plotting evil. Why? You plot in vain. In vain you plot. When they plot in vain, you should do what the Lord does. <laughs> the Lord laughs. <laughs> oh, you're doing this. <laughs> you're plotting against righteousness. The Lord laughs. He scoffs at them. It says he scoffs at them. Proclaim in prayer and in person, where possible. You leaders, be wise. You leaders, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss Jesus Christ, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But he blesses those who take refuge in him. That's the end of the song. And that's what we must take comfort in. And that's what we must pray. If you're going to pray. Let's, let's stand to our feet and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray right now, Lord God. That we place our refuge in you. And you alone. Nothing else, Lord. And in no one else. We prophesy to our governments and our rulers, Lord, and say, be wise and be warned. Serve the Lord and fear Him. Rejoice with trembling. Come and be affectionate to Jesus. Because if He's angry, you'll be destroyed in your way. His wrath can flare up in a moment. And we know that this is a prophetic picture of the future, but it is also a reality right now. Every single ruler that rejects Jesus can be taken out in an instant under the decision of, of the Lord. So we pray that, Lord God. We pray as we've prayed for righteous rulers. I, I just want to say this. If you've been in a position where you've, you've believed, but you've never really taken the step to give your life to Christ, I want you to do that right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I am for you completely. I'm not against you. I want you to transform me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Because that's what it requires. It's not a mental ascent. It's something you have to do from within. You have to say, Lord, transform me within. And you'll know that that transformation has occurred because you will desire to kiss the Son. You will desire to serve Him. You will desire to walk in His ways. You will desire to walk away from unrighteousness. That is how you know that you have been changed. And it's not something that somebody has to remind you of. You know it within. And that's the Holy Spirit is within you. He's, he's convicting you. That's how you know transformation has happened. And if that transformation hasn't happened, then you ask the Lord. And then once you've done that, then you need to speak to somebody because it's what we confess with our mouth. It's not a private thing. It's a public thing. One of the things that, that people don't like about evangelicals is that they are public in their faith. They wouldn't mind if they were private. But we're public in our faith because the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. So you confess with your mouth. Amen. Amen.
Bless you guys. And continue to pray so that we can be completely full in this place without any restrictions. Amen. 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 Guys, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to hurry you up, but I know the guys have to clean. And I know your fellowship is great. I mean, we want a fellowship, but this is one of the hard parts. They need to clean, uh, sanitize the seats for the next service. Thank you. 